I used to think for most of my adult life uh, that, that Christianity just didn't have that much to say to me. I would wonder, what, what is it that Christianity, you, Jesus, God through Jesus, have to say to me? I grew up uh, white, oldest son in a Midwestern family, middle to upper middle income, parents in a stable marriage, um, financially doing okay, went to high school, was guided through high school, went to a good college, just a lot of stability, not a lot of threat to my existence. And so in college and as a young adult, I would look at the text and there'd just be a lot of distress in there and opposition and oppression. And I would just think, is this even relevant? Like, I would have these wonderings sometimes. Is there a way I could produce a little bit of trouble in my life so that what's going on in here might speak to me? Now, of course, I didn't really want to do that, right? I'd much rather have life just be going swimmingly and try to hear what, you know, little bits in there might be for me. Now, of course, the truth is I was inhabiting a practice of faith, I was inhabiting a religion that sheltered me from what the text would be saying to somebody like me, to somebody in my position, sheltering me from the things I didn't want to hear. So I didn't have to experience distress. Well, all of that changed in the course of the trajectory of our church. We've talked about this quite a bit over the past 10 to 15 years. For us, it could come through other sources for other people going through the same kind of conversion that we went through. But for us, it came through God bringing into our awareness the desire, the need on God's part and on our part to become inclusive, to welcome queerness and queer people who were formerly included into our church. And we were having a conversation with some friends at a Bible study in our home recently where my wife and I were describing what happened for us. The primary outcome of this was not that we became like better, more admirable human beings because those who were formerly excluded now can come to our wonderful party, but (laughs) that we ourselves became Christians. I feel like a part of the process of conversion for us was going from being at least to some degree not Christian to Christian because of how we were transformed by the process of realizing what we had produced that could condone exclusion to something where that's just not even conceivable as a part of our practice of faith. So we were converted, I was converted into becoming a Christian through that process of transformation. Now the problem is it makes me susceptible and prone to all sorts of distress that I didn't have to feel previously because of all of a sudden, oh God, just go out the door. (sighs) I was so close, right? I think it thinks that the fire little extinguisher things, yes, are flowers. Okay. So, this whole transformation caused me to be concerned about things I wasn't concerned about before, to be affected personally, to love people in a way that causes me to feel their distress. I will never not be who I am. You know, I can't enter a different demographic identity, 
but who I love and what affects me is profoundly different. And so the world now has become a place of distress, right? A place filled with threat, filled with opposition, filled with systems of power who oppress the marginalized and who are by definition powerless. So all of a sudden, <laughs> the, the next benefit of that is that the Bible is really, really relevant, like all the time, just so much more, because it is the lived experience of Jesus that we will see today, and we will experience how God means to bring help to us through Jesus in the kind of world in which we live, okay? So we join this part of the story. This is in the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 14, and it begins this way, the part of our story we're going to go through. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Okay, so we're right in the thick of the fray. Murderous threat coming towards Jesus from the local powers. Now this warning is a little bit interesting because it's coming from a group of people who normally are at odds with Jesus, okay? <clears throat> this part of this story comes on the heels of a couple of stories that I've presented in recent Sundays. The narrative arc is at some point in the middle of Luke, Jesus sets himself to go to Jerusalem, right? He has a destination, so he's traveling one city, one town, one village to the next and the next and the next, but it's all in the service of getting to Jerusalem, and when he gets there, everybody knows something's going to happen. He's this impressive figure who's caught the attention of a lot of people. They find hope in him because he seems like a hero promised by God who's going to save them, release them from oppression, from all the troubles that they are experiencing, so some people are really excited, oh, this is going to be great, Jesus is going to take over. A lot of people are not, because Jesus is also threatening. He is gaining power himself that they don't control, and he may be troubling two systems. And so <laughs> here we have yet one more of these kinds of people. <clears throat> it seems to me that when I look at how Jesus interacts with systems, there is a pretty typical response. <clears throat> Jesus comes into contact with a system. Some people run the power in the system. Those people detect the impressiveness, something to Jesus, and their first impulse is to want to control him. When they realize they are not going to be able to control him, they say, well, then I'm going to kill you, right? It's either control or be killed, okay? And so here we have another one of these figures, Herod. This is Herod Antipas. He's an interesting figure with an interesting identity. So his grandfather became king of this region, the whole big region. You can put up the map. Um, so all of that region, Herod Antipas's grandfather came to control it. Herod Antipas was an Edomite. So he's from Arabia. He's not by descent um, an Israelite, a Hebrew, a part of the Jewish Judean tradition, but he becomes Jewish, so he practices Judaism. But he's given power by Rome, okay? So he's not a descendant, he's not a native, he's given power somewhere else. When he dies, he gives his kingdom to his son. When his son is about to die, he splits up his kingdom between his three sons, right? That's always a good idea. <laughs> give, give three of your kids power over neighboring territories. The one Jesus is encountering today is Herod Antipas. He's in control of the little pink territory here, right? 
So there's just not a lot. And it's not great territory. It's essentially being the governor of a plains state, but you're a non-native, right? And your source of power is not from the people, it's from somewhere else, it's from far away. <laughs> oh, thank God. Holy cow. All right, I have never gotten applause like that. I just want to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a relief. <laughs> I'm, what'd you say? Oh, God, yeah. I know. We should close, close the doors. All right. Anyways, so, so Herod Antipas is like, he's functionally a governor, but with a lot of Ill illegitimacy. To him. He's not a native, his power is from elsewhere, and then he does things that just get people upset. So uh, the Hebrew people had a strong sense of morality and behavior, especially relationally, but this is the Herod who divorces his wife to marry his stepbrother's wife, which uh, John the Baptist decries, and so Herod has John the Baptist beheaded. Actually, Her actually Herod's wife has John the Baptist beheaded. So a lot of threat, right? So this is the guy too, he's kind of fascinated with the whole religion thing, but he also experiences Jesus um, as a threatening person. If I can't control you, I will kill you. And so this warning comes to Jesus, and it's a little bit odd again, because the, the people who bring it are the Pharisees. Now, in the telling of the story, the Pharisees are one sect of the Jewish religion, and they are typically portrayed as being kind of at odds with Jesus. They don't get along with him. They feel threatened by him. There are some aspects of their practice of faith that Jesus decries. But here you have some of them, apparently, who, by all appearances, want to help. They send Jesus this warning, go away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And so Jesus' response is interesting. You can show the next slide. It said, Jesus said to them, go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. <laughs> so rather than, oh, thank you, I will scurry away to safe territory, which isn't far because Herod doesn't control that much. Jesus essentially says, yeah, go tell Herod to take a number. Right? He wants to kill me, everybody wants to kill me. And I am going to choose, thank you, where, when, and by whom I get killed. Right? That's, that's kind of a given, at least in the mind of Jesus. This is going to be the outcome. I'm going to get killed, but I'm going to choose where, when, and by whom. And I think there's a real reason for the where, when, and by whom that Jesus chooses. But what's interesting to me, too, is his reaction to the Pharisees. I'm going to go out on a speculative limb here. My sense is that what Jesus detects is that these Pharisees have an in with Herod. Because he says to them, go back and tell Herod. So Jesus is assuming you have, you can obtain an audience. You've gotten this information from somewhere. And so go back and give a message for me. 
My sense is that Jesus is feeling, if I take this good advice from you, which sounds so kind, I will be beholden to you in a way that I don't want to be beholden. I will owe you something. You will think we have a kind of allegiance or alliance that we don't actually have and that I don't want to have with anybody. I think Jesus yet again detects threat from them. For those of you who've been around anybody, maybe yourself, people you know, who've been traumatized, Jesus feels to me as if he's behaving like somebody who is suffering from post-traumatic stress. One of the effects of having been traumatized amongst many <clears throat> is that you are hypervigilant. The world has become a place of threat. Threat is everywhere. It is the presumption that the world is filled with threat. And so anything that comes to you that's new, that you don't know, you assume it is a threatening thing until proven again and again and again and again and again otherwise. Right? And it feels like that's how Jesus behaves. I don't think he is actually the victim of trauma or behaving unknowingly as someone who's been traumatized. I just think that's the reality of his lived life, that everybody wants to control him, and if they can't, they will try to kill him. That's what it flips to. And so (laughs) it is such a different image of Jesus than the one I grew up with, than the one I think in sort of kind, nice culture we try to purvey. We see Jesus as this guy who's just love. He just, he's just spewing all the time like, like heart emojis. <clears throat> you know, everywhere he goes, it's just this trail of heart emojis, and he says nice things and kind things, and he's loving, and, and he's, you know, he picks you up, and he helps you across the street, and he gives you some wisdom, and there's, there's like maybe a moment of disquiet at some point, a little, you know, ripple or, or you know, wisp of smoke, but it's just, whew, burned away in the love of Jesus. I think the opposite is true. I think his life, because of how we behave towards him, trying to control or kill him, was unremittingly a life of being on guard, of being on the alert, of parrying, of antagonism, of conflict. And what's unusual are the little glimpses into how God wanted to love us through Jesus that we get, which is why we have to pay attention to what comes next. So here's the next text. So, Jesus, it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. I think the word Jerusalem triggers something for him that we encounter. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings And you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. So something just in that word Jerusalem triggers for Jesus this expression of of love, of longing, of a desire of a way of relating to humankind that he desperately wants to inhabit, that he desperately wants to enact. Um... I grew up in Michigan, then lived in Illinois for a long time, and now here for 25 plus years. I've had a lot of time, a lot of occasions across the course of the time to go to Colorado, to travel to Colorado, right? So to drive at least 25 times to Denver and beyond. And <laughs> it is a long slog of a drive, right? 
We know where we're going. We're on a journey. We're heading somewhere, but oh, getting there, man. You, you go through Iowa, and I live in Iowa. I love Iowa, but it's driving through Iowa. And then you get to Nebraska, right? <laughs> it just gets worse. If you're, if you're driving in the spring, maybe you get the sandhill cranes, you know, and it's like, but there's just a lot of really brown birds. And it's like, okay, that helped a little bit. But then you get to eastern Colorado, and just any, just it all vanishes. It's just empty, dry desert, mile after mile after mile. And you're going, and you're thinking, was this worth it? What was I going for? I can't remember. You're in kind of this delusional fog of nothingness. But I know it. There's this corner that you turn on the highway in the middle of eastern Iowa. I can feel it now, like I can intuit it. You turn, and there are the mountains. Like, oh, there they are. You see them in the distance. They rise up. They're maybe snow-covered. And oh, <laughs> I may be exaggerating. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. I feel enlivened at that moment. It's like, oh, that's right. I remember what I'm going for. I remember where we're going to get. We're going to get there. We're almost, it's just like this feeling. And I have that sense at this moment with Jesus. There is this way of God loving us through Jesus that God wants to express that we hardly ever see because we stand in the way of it. We oppose it. We are antagonistic. We are caught up in our own desire for Jesus to be something other than what he is. But here it is. And it's this image, right, of Jesus seeing you and I. There's another place a little bit later in Luke where Jesus actually comes upon Jerusalem. He crests a hill or turns a corner and he looks down and he sees the people. <clears throat> and I think he detects their personal anxieties, their personal disarray, their personal inner turmoil and distress, just running around and oh. And then the systems level, they had pff, just level upon level of system oppression. You know, as bad or worse as anything that we will ever experience. And the impulse of Jesus in that moment you kind of wonder reading the story whether Jesus even remembers why he's doing this. <laughs> but it's like, there it is. I love you. I want to take care of you. I want to shelter you. I see you. I know what you're experiencing. I know what you're going through. I want to bring you close. I want to be intimate with you. I want to provide protection for you. It's an interesting expression of help in the part of God. I think some of us, when we are experiencing our own personal distress or we're involved in systems that feel like they're going to squash us, we have to fix it out there, right? Totally legitimate. We have to take action. We have to do things. We have to decry. We have to protest. We have to plan for the future. But here is a way of God helping us that I think is just as important, just as essential, just as needful for you and me. That we just, we let God see us as we are. This image of coming as a, as a hen, as a, it's so, I don't mean this in a gender-constrained way, just the prototypical, it's so mothering. It's so caring, it's so close, it's so intimate. And it's how Jesus wants to love you. It's how Jesus wants to care for you. It's a thing he can provide for you that can be deeply helpful. But the sad thing about the story is how seldom it happens. Even in this moment, nobody is aware that this is how Jesus is feeling towards them. 
right? They don't even know because we're so busy running around, defending ourselves, protecting, deflecting. We had an interesting conversation about this, again, in this Bible study that was in, in our home. <clears throat> the image is very affectionate. <laughs> and there are decent numbers in the group who just are not huggy people, right? Some of us, for legitimate reasons, that the source of that kind of affection in our past was tainted or corrupted, and so we're leery of it. Some of us just aren't huggy. Like my kids know, I love my kids and we hug, but they know if they want to bug me, they will do extravagant group hugging of me. <laughs> and I'll just, oh, you know. I don't think this way of Jesus loving us demands that you become, like if you're not really wired towards hugs, I think it's more just acknowledging, this is what I need from you, Jesus. This is helpful. This is important. This is a way that you can care for me in a super stressed world. Um, I'll tell this story. I have a spiritual director who I've been meeting with for a long time now, probably about a decade. He is father age. My father passed away about seven years ago. My spiritual director is retired Lutheran pastor. He knows me through and through. And I know he just cares for me. It still is the case that every time I go to see him, I was driving there this past week, I'm thinking, how can I let him know that I'm really doing well? Right? That the troubles in my life are under control, that they're mostly fixed. I, I want to make him pleased with me. You know? And so I'm doing not this. I am presenting myself to my spiritual director as not needing his help, as having life under control. And so I meet with him, and I talk in 20 minutes, you know, and I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm, I can't stay with it, so I'm devolving into all the sources of stress in my life, personal, systems, just everything. And about 35 minutes in, I say to him, I realize, I say to him, you know, I just can't be satisfied, right? I always need things to be better. I'm never happy. My life is full of blessing, but I can't inhabit it. Right? And he, he knows me. And so it's this moment of me acknowledging my defendedness against needing this kind of care and letting it go. And it's just amazing. Like instantly, I can receive this kind of care from him. I can just settle into it. He loves me. He knows me. He's outside my system. He can speak kindly to me. He can shelter me. He can shadow me. He can gather me to himself, and I can receive it. I'm telling you, most of my time spent praying for myself, most of my time spent when I've gotten counseling and therapy has been so that I can shed the things that keep me from accessing this. Because once I do, I am a different person. I'm cared for, I'm sheltered, I have somebody who's with me in the travails of life. I go out and I do the things I need to do to try to make the world a better place, but I do it with energy and passion and lightness and enthusiasm and helpfulness and a sense that I'm not alone, just all sorts of good things come to me. So I feel like this is something that God has for you, for all of us, through Jesus. A way of receiving help whatever your personal stresses, whatever your system stresses, whatever it is you need to decry in the world, whatever it is that presses down on you, God is here for you through Jesus. 
in this way. My hope for us is that we can take advantage, that we don't have to be observed uh, unaware by Jesus, triggering this love in him towards you and me, but that we can turn towards him and receive it. Okay. So we're going to take one moment just to settle into that in thoughtfulness and prayer. The band can come forward as we prepare for the next part of the service. I'm just going to pray to give you a moment to bring you into awareness that, that this is how Jesus feels for you. So God, help us to connect with this reality, to lay aside controlling you, being opposed to you, and all the ways in which we would say, I don't need this, I don't want this, this doesn't feel good, and just, Bring us to a moment of letting go of that and perceiving how you love us, God, through Jesus in this way. Jesus, be present to us. Help us detect your heart of compassion, kindness, and protection towards us.